Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. It is our desire to hear the Lord speak, and He does that through His Word, a living and active Word that continues to have eternal impact on our souls. And so take your Bibles this morning as we start the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter chapter 10, actually. I'm going to push you that way. Now, I'm not doing anything funny here. I'm just want to show you some things. And by the way, Ducksteins, you have all these kids, and David, you need to sit closer to your mother. I mean, when they were excused to, to son, that's a command, sit closer to your mother. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Oh, get some of the laughter out of the way. I, I, I woke in this morning to the smell of, of pork smoking on the grill, and uh, we're looking forward to having a, a picnic with you and enjoying a fellowship and, and uh, of course, celebration of the Independence Day that we enjoy. Let's begin with prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the morning and for the joy it is to come, to gather, to sing your praises, to have our hearts under the word of God as we think through its, its truth. We ask, Lord, that we are people who are transformed, that are continuing to grow in the likeness of Christ, that we're able to see your hand move in our lives, to not only identify that hand, but also rejoice and praise when we see it. And so we thank you for all that you are, are doing in and through us as a body, as individuals. We love you. I ask that you'd be with your servant as he desires to honor you as we, we start this gospel, Father. What a joyous opportunity for us to look into the life and ministry of Christ. And so it is our delight to, to be able to Study this. Holy Spirit, have your way. Teach us what is right, what is true, what is good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always the, the, the preacher's dilemma. I mean, you think about going from leaving one book in Jonah, and you kind of want to stay there for a while. You want the Lord to write chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right? Just because of the truths that we find ourselves in, and yet it's also a joy to start a a new book to be able to come and understand what God is doing in this aspect, what he's going to teach our hearts. So I anticipate as much as Jonas taught us much, that the book of Mark will do all the same. And I have an idea where it's going to lead us. So should you, as if you have read the scriptures, you know that the gospel of Mark, though it's the shortest gospel, it is impactful. So you're in chapter 10 uh, of Mark, and, and I want to point out the verse that, that really sets the stage for this gospel. There in verse 45, it reads this, 
It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That one verse, I mean, it is, and of course, Lord willing, we'll get there eventually, but this one verse kind of sets the whole stage of the book, the Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, which, which is pretty important for us to understand. Why then did he come? And if he didn't come to be served, what did he come to do? And of course, Jesus clearly says, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And all that is written in the Gospel of Mark, it flows from this main purpose statement from our Lord. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And the greatest example of a serving, beloved, is to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. Like I said, Lord willing, we'll we'll get to this chapter. But I want you to see this verse and the truth that Jesus is saying, that he has come into the world. Now get this, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God himself, not to be served as he rightly should be served, but as one who takes a role of a servant to serve the eternal plan of God, the sinner's. That thought in itself is pretty remarkable to think about when you think about the divine nature of God, the God who has created all things, the God who sustains all things, the God who spoke everything into existence, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, says they have come to be a servant. It's pretty remarkable to think about these things especially in the Gospel of Mark, as you, as you unfold it and start to introduce yourself to it, you, you find that, that there's, a, there's a lot of things happening. For that matter, there, there's, there's action after action. It's impactful. There's only two lengthy teaching segments by our Lord. That's in chapter 4 with the parables and chapter 13 with the Olivet Discourse. You will notice on the top of your sermon notes that I titled our study in the Gospel of Mark as the one who does. And Mark captures this. I mean, it's just remarkable to think about this. It's hard to take a breath. Even though this is a short gospel in thought of chapter and verses, it is an impactful gospel that continues to move, continues to have an impact. The reason that title fits this gospel so well It's because of how Mark captures the life of Christ. Like I said, we'll unfold this as as Lord willing as time goes on. But but Mark writes with a fast-moving, dramatical style that Jesus is performing miracle after miracle. I mean, there are are a plethora of miracles. Now, of course, the Gospel of John in John chapter 20 told us that the books that the world even has contain all the miracles that Jesus did. But this gospel captures many of them. And he's moving from from one miracle to the other. And he does so with a dramatic style that that Jesus is doing many things that as students of the scriptures, we've got to walk away with a great awe. Every time he does something, every time he, he, he does his divine nature and he shows it to us, we are in awe. 
for Mark, it's, it's the action of Jesus that, that he wants us to grasp. He often uses this adverb. He, he uses the adverb that is translated from the Greek immediately, immediately, immediately. You're almost at, at weighted breath trying to see what is Jesus going to do next. It's as if Mark is pushing us along to the many miracles and the truth that our Lord has given us. Like he said, he uses that word immediately 41 times in this short gospel. In comparison, and why that is significant, you think about Matthew and his use of the word, and I know they're two different people, two different inspired gospel writers, but Matthew only uses immediately seven times. Luke only once. And then to get us, the reader, into the scene, this is what's so, so beautiful about this gospel. Mark uses what we call, now follow me here, a historical present tense in the Greek. What does that mean? Historical present tense in the Greek is a construction that uses present tense verbs in a narrative to describe past events. So what is Mark doing with this? He's using this verb construction to help us draw us as a front row seat person to, to see the, the miracle in the hand of Christ, even though these events have already taken place. He uses this construction 151 times in this gospel, which is pretty remarkable. You will see this in your Bibles as this, Jesus comes, Jesus says, Jesus heals. All these are, are, are actions that, that, that put you into the scene. And so when we start exposing this gospel, we need to, to buckle up because we are going for a ride. It will be a joyous ride, a journey in the life of Christ that will cause us all the more, like I said earlier, to, to fall in love with him, to, to, to follow his ways in obedience. Mark will bring out all of Christ's beauty in so many ways. Now, it only makes sense. You can see where when we start a book, we got to kind of put it in context, right? We got to understand exactly who Mark is writing to, what's going on with the situation. So this morning, I, I kind of want to do that. I want to set the stage. Church history points to the Apostle Mark. I mean, I, I'm pointing to that as well as the author of this gospel. And why is this important? Because in, in the three synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, None of those three Gospels ever mention their, their names. When you read the three synoptic Gospels, there, there's a lot of overlap of the events that are recorded in each of the Gospels. That's why we call these three synoptics. In other words, they are seen together is what that word means. The Gospel of Mark is seen as the first Gospel written because there are so many events shared that history tells us when it was possibly written and put in a timeline, we know that, that Mark was definitely the first gospel written. I say all that, that seems pretty elementary. But we live in a day and age, if you haven't already noticed, that there are higher critics of the scriptures who try to dismantle even the authorship of the book of Mark. You want to get my feathers in a ruffle. 
Start stripping away the authority of the Scripture and the power of God who wrote it. In the 19th, 20th, and even the 21st century, there had been a push to strip away the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writings of these Gospels. I think that's one of the reasons why the Christian church, the church universal, has, has started going down a liberal path, a compromising path, a path that puts themselves in authority where they can strip away and say, you know what, I don't know if Mark actually wrote the book of Mark. Listen, church history is on our side. Church history, that the church fathers point to the reality that Mark was the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. It's pretty odd to me if you were to study some of that. Some of these higher critics even believe that all three synoptic gospels share the same resource. They had to have, right? Their thought is, is that they're all human. They're not inspired by God. And so they make up this, this, this document that they call Q. I don't know why Q, but that's why the, what they call it. And they believe that each gospel writer had the same resource to write the gospel of Mark. Listen, how much blasphemy can we get, right? It, it, God said that he has inspired his men to write his word. All this higher criticism is humanism. It is a desire to strip the authority, and I think that's the reason why they bring it forth. If they can strip away the authority of the word of God, then they don't have to submit to it. Their desire is to strip away the authority and the sufficiency of God and giving and supplying the word of God for these gospel writers to write. And so they come up with this idea that there's this document named Q, which nobody has found, and saying that these men all wrote from the same document. Listen, they heard from the same author. God is the author of the scriptures. He's the one who, who inspired Mark to, to, to pen these things. And so it does make sense that there would be some kind of similarity when there's one author behind it. These higher critics in their lofty offices who think that they know much more than you and I believe that they have the higher authority and not God. The authority of Scripture lies with God. I mean, that's the simplicity when you think about when you come to saving faith, right? You come to faith knowing that God is the one who spoke it, and he gave it to the writers, and they wrote what he said. How do we know that? There's two important verses in your Bible. Why don't you turn forward to 2 Peter? I think we have some time here. Turn forward instead of looking at the screen. 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 19, towards the end of that chapter, this question arose, how can we trust the authority of the scriptures? And this is what Peter says. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And then he says this in verse 20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I mean, that dismantles, that one verse dismantles the higher critic's understanding of where 
the authority and inspiration of Scripture comes from. Peter tells us that, that, that Scripture is not a matter of, of, of any of the writer's own interpretation. And then he goes on to say this, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That Greek word moved there has the idea of God speaking down to his authors and pointing to the fact that he is the one behind it. I mean, this is so critical in our understanding, so fundamental in our understanding of the scriptures. There's a reason why the the universal church has gone off its rails because they don't understand that that they are no longer the authority God is. That's why he is Lord. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I mean, your thought about inspiration, your thought about authority, your thought, and there's so many implications that flows from, from this doctrine alone. And so when we think about biblical inspiration, we think about God. We think about his intended purposes in speaking theological truth. And it makes sense, especially if we're his creation, correct? We need to hear from God. Um, by the way, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, what does it say in the beginning? God. And so it's so interesting to me. And by the way, there's, there's a great correlation. Turn back to, to Mark chapter 1. You'll see something pretty interesting, which we'll bring out, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. Just as much as I say Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God, look what Mark and how he starts out. And he makes this tie back to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so some definitive similarities there that, that, that point to the reality that, that this is God's book. This is his truth. This is God's man. Of course, Jesus is God himself. So when we think about biblical inspirations, we must understand that this is God-breathed. This is living, Hebrews 4.12, Right? The analogy that's there in Hebrews 4.12 4, is, is telling us that the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharpened in two-edged sword, able to pierce your soul. And so when we study these words and sentences given by God, God does so without violating the personality. That's what's so unique about Mark is in reading a little bit about how he wrote, the style he wrote. I mean, all that's here. Same thing with Peter. Same thing with Paul. Same thing with every prophet they have their own personalities, but when God spoke to them and what they spoke and what is eternal is definitely coming from God. And when we study the, these words, these sentences, God does so without violating each of the writer's personalities. Yet what they wrote and the time that they wrote was inspired by God. Now that seems pretty elementary as well. But it's important. You come to a Bible church knowing that the authority of our lives is God's word. It is the Bible. It is its truth. And so we come and, and, and we, we submit to what it says knowing that this is breathed out by God. 
some of the implications I alluded to earlier. And I'm seeing this throughout my life. And it's the question of authority. Even as redeemed sinners, we want authority of our own lives. But listen, there's only one authority, and that is God. And when he speaks, when he gives us his word, it's not open for debate. It's not open for debate. That is just a, all that to say, a, a bunch of words to say that Mark wrote the book in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? <clears throat> now, a little more color on Mark. I don't know if you made the connection or not, but, but he, he was actually going by the name of John Mark in the book of Acts. We have a, a scenario with him. <laughs> Things did not go well, according to his relationship with the other apostles, especially the apostle Paul. It says in Acts 13, 13, look to the screen, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Papias and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. To say it mildly, Paul was upset. He was displeased. There became a, a conversation, so much so that, that Paul refused to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. This led to a, a debate, like I said, with, with Paul and Barnabas that ended up with Paul taking Silas one way and Barnabas taking John Mark and going the other way. All that's recorded for you in Acts 15. You can see that dynamic. It's remarkable as you take back and kind of look at that relationship, the, the power of the transformation, the reconciliation power of the gospel. Guess what? Those two apostles got it right. And that's pretty neat to see, to know that they, they had sought forgiveness, and so much so that you have Paul who's imprisoned in Rome. He says, bring John Mark, because he's a value to me. And so time was a healer there. The gospel was a healer there. All of that was, was helpful, but this is the, the writer that we're talking about. This is the apostle that we're talking about. Now, as to the audience, the context that, that, that Mark wrote this gospel to was definitely to Gentiles who in Rome. It, it's roughly 60 to 70 AD, and if you think about Christian history and the timeline of all that, remember this is on the heels of Nero, who, who's bringing persecution, who was going after Christians, is it appropriate today? We have society who do not, does not like you. What shape of persecution will come our way? But I don't know. But the Lord says this, that, that, that we have a Savior. His name is Christ Jesus. And so Nero had already blamed the Christians. Christians were seen in a negative light, which, by the way, doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, you stand for truth today, and even in our little community, and, and rocks are going to be thrown. I took issue, you heard from me, uh, maybe on the radio, the three pastors took issue with the whole issue of a pastor, a local pastor. I use that word you know, kind of loosely. But he made fast, saying that Jesus was the first promoter of the LGBTQ lifestyle. And it's interesting to me. That article, of course, got, got thrown up on Facebook. Our a local liberal newspaper enjoyed it. And, and so I just laughed at it. 
in all seriousness, the defaming of, of Christ who contradicts, by the way, if he did do that, which he did not, if he did do that, is contradicting the word of God, which would not make him God. And so I took issue to that just with, in today's popular terms, with an emoji, right? And boy, did the rocks come. <laughs> I mean, I saw trolls that I never knew exist just because I laughed at an article when what he was promoting hate. I was, I was considered to be a hateful pastor um, instead of standing by truth. By the way, that stuff I, I, I smile at. I understand your, your pastor, he's big enough to take some of those things, but I do cover your prayers in the midst of all those things and, and do want to show Christ's kindness to the sinner. But it's interesting to me. That is only going to ramp up all the more, right? but it's persecution that drives the background of Mark's gospel. This is the reason why he, uh, why he writes, and he, and he wants them, these persecuted saints to grasp a Christology that is so divine that no matter what persecution they face, they're able to walk with hope, with encouragement, with surety, with determination, all these things are, are flowing out when Mark writes this. And it's pretty remarkable to see as he continues. Like I said, I can't wait to get into it. It's one of those things where I think you'll be encouraged just as much as I will be. Now, as, as to the flow and structure, it really breaks down into two parts. The first part of Mark's gospel from chapter 1 to, to chapter 8. Halfway point, yes, is seen clearly as Mark's or God's emphasis on Jesus as the, as the Messiah. And I shouldn't just say the Messiah, the mighty Messiah, because the miracles and the display and, and the power that Jesus does is in this first part, these first eight chapters that Jesus characterized as the one who has authority. Uh, it's seen throughout, through, like I said, his miracles. And it leads to two results. It, it either caused people to repent and believe, or it caused people to pick up rocks and throw. And so you have those who are in awe and those who are opposed, and they come clashing. And of course, you and I both know, as we're familiar with the gospel story, that, that all of this was in the eternal plan of God. All of this drives to Mark 8.27, where if you were to remember that chapter in that situation where Jesus is taking his disciple away to spend some time with them, and he turns to them, and he asks them, who do they say I am? Of course, the response was John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But then he trials us in and says, but who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, speaks up. He's, he's one that we know as an, as an apostle that, that is, is very boisterous in, in his approach. He speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah. Which Jesus says, you're right. What helps us to think rightly about the book of Mark is, is to think that, that everything and all these miracles is pointing to that reality. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one who God has sent. 
All that was leading to that response. Everything that Mark was inspired to write about Jesus was pointing to this truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the Son of God. And just when you think this will be the time Jesus takes his throne and rules over the oppressive Romans, we saw that in our study in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. Just when you think that the oppressive Romans and the persecution will be gone and Christ will set up his kingdom, you have a dramatic change of events that leads Jesus to the cross, which is beautiful. All that to point to the purpose of why Jesus was sent in the first place to be the Messiah, to suffer, and to die. And that is the direction the second half of the book of Mark goes. The second half develops the theme of Jesus must suffer, he must die, he must be a ransom. He states it three times, this truth. Of course, the disciples are are having trouble trying to understand it. Each time he points to this reality in the second half from from end of chapter 8, to chapter 16, the disciples missed the point. And what's interesting to me is they, they often respond with, with pride and selfishness. Oh, no, 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 Lord. Oh, no, no, no. That's not going to happen. Can you imagine saying no to Jesus, right? And so what does Jesus do? Listen. Jesus tells them, it's pretty remarkable to think about. They're trying to protect all that they see with the divine nature of Christ. And they're telling him, this is not how it's supposed to go. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, you will deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. He, He, in essence, gives us what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He gives us an understanding what it means to follow our Lord. And he does it by way of... Of, of action, of example. He says, just look at me. Look at me. I will be a servant. I will deny myself. I will pick up my cross, which when you think about the cross, it's an instrument of suffering, an instrument of pain. And I will obey God the Father and go to the cross. And there's so many details that I say, Lord willing, we'll get there. That sets up the context of Mark. This, this sets up for exactly where we're heading with this, this whole gospel. As much as we get an overview of what's happening, um, we're going to dive down into the minutia of it all and, and just rejoice in what God is doing with Christ. Let me shift gears just as we, we exit here. I, I want to shift gears to a couple major theological themes, which I've already kind of emphasized a little bit, but I, I want to make sure you get them. As you have hopefully already picked up, the important thing about the gospel of Mark is Christology. We must understand Christ right according to how God sent him, according to what Christ has said. Christology is very important. You and I both know that. To have wrong Christology develops multiple cults. Okay, And so having an understanding of, of what Mark does, and if you're there in Mark chapter 1, I mean, that's why he jumps to Christ. He doesn't give a, 
a genealogy like Matthew does. He, de- he doesn't give, these, he just jumps into the fact that the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he just launches into it. And our Christology is formed as Mark points to Jesus' divine authority. Get this, cast out demons to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And beloved, only God can do that. Pointing the reality that Jesus is God. And then when we think about Jesus suffering and dying, our Christology in the book of Mark drives us to the conclusion that this was God's plan all along. This is an eternal plan in which God displays his glory and by sending his son to save us as sinners. Mark's intended purpose was to display Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And thus the only one to bring us reconciliation to a holy God. I mean, you can't walk away from studying the gospel of Mark without saturating your mind and heart with Jesus. That's why it's a good place to be, isn't it? To have our our hearts and minds consumed with Christ, knowing that the world is crumbling around us and that sin seems to, to raise its ugly head and continues to grow. Listen, you thought you only needed Jesus to save you. You need Jesus every day. And that's the point. The gospel reminds us of these things. And so the first theological emphasis that you must have when we study the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Oh, he'll show you. He'll display it. We'll come to that conclusion if you haven't already been there. And not only that, he says, I'm heading to the cross. I'm heading to the cross. The other major theological emphasis in the Gospel of Mark, like I said, it it, it kind of breaks down to the structure of the book itself, but that is to look to Jesus as an example and to follow it, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit and truth, we can do that. This truth builds on what Mark has already developed and what we know, think, and understand Jesus to be, and so our Christology is set in the first eight chapters, and so when we get to chapter nine, it it should be easy launch to the reality that I'm going to follow him. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I'm going to follow his truth. I think it's interesting to me often you think of role models. Never in the scripture does this ever say look at earthly man to be your model. But it does say this. You look to God. Of course, Jesus being dwelling amongst flesh, we look to him as being not only the author of our faith, but the perfecter of our faith, and we follow him. I mean, we'll see examples of faith given here. I mean, I I think about just some of the chapters and some of the interactions that are going on and and what God does in people's lives and and the, the amazing faith that comes out of it. I think of the woman with the blood disease in Mark chapter 5 and her faith to trust in Jesus. Think of Jairus, the the synagogue ruler in chapter 6, the the father of a demon-possessed boy in chapter 9. They all had their faith in Christ. It goes on and on. Like I say, we'll see those things pop out on the page. Yet from the get-go, 
from the beginning of, of Mark 1.1, the example is Jesus. He's the ultimate model for our discipleship, for our following him. The one who pursues God perfectly. You think of Jesus Christ and his obedience. He's the one we look to. I mean, so it comes down to the fact that are we going to embrace a gospel that is inspired by God? To help us confirm, maybe even establish a Christology that is focused on truth. And then get this, and I think this is, at least at the beginning of my studies here, it's really driven me in my own soul. Was is to be a servant like the one who is my Lord. I think I'm an example of this. Uh, looking at this and looking at servanthood and what it means to be a servant of Christ. And there's a story that goes that's recorded for us that in 1887, when William Booth's Salvation Army, you guys understand the Salvation Army and William Booth starting that. It tells us that men from around the world desired to go over to England and, and to sit underneath his tutelage. One man had a, had a dream of himself. He was a pastor in America, across the Atlantic, and enlisted in Booth's Salvation Army. His name was Samuel Bringold. He turned from his pastorate and the comforts of America, and he turned to enlist to be a soldier in God's army. It's recorded for us that there's this interaction with Booth and Bringle. Booth saw something in Bringle that he did not like. And so he reluctantly and grudgingly accepted this foreigner, and yet his eyes was attuned to his heart. And Pooh's comment to Bringle was this, and I quote, he tells Bringle, you have been your own boss too long, end quote. So in order to instill humility, Booth sets Bringle to work cleaning boots, to which it started to irritate Bringle. He was there to do the Lord's work. But in the midst of cleaning boots, the Lord got a hold of his heart. And this is what Bringle says about the situation. He says, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to clean boots? to which the Lord used Booth in the life of Bringles. In particular, guess what? Booth was teaching out of the book of Mark. To which, underneath that tutelage, underneath the preaching of God's word, Bringle came to understand that if it's the Lord's will that I wash clean, 
boots. Then so be it. Why? Because he came to the realization that if the Lord can wash his disciples' feet, then I can wash boots. The Gospel of Mark will drive us to understand what it means to be a true servant of Christ. And I pray that it transforms us, grows us all the more to be the servant that God calls us to be. That to be humble. To be a servant. Listen, if you're an owner of a business, if you're going to college, no matter, you think about whatever area that you find yourself in, there are many opportunities for you to be Christ's servant. That's simply put, right? The question is, will you do it? Will you do it? Just had an interaction with a, a fellow official out in the community, and he has since not stepped away from officiating and just because of the hectic nature of it all and, and this and that. And he's expressing what he's doing now, and... Uh, he says, I'm working for so-and-so. And I said, listen, I grew up with so-and-so. I went to high school with him. He goes, you did? I said, yeah, I did. And he goes, man, I've never met a guy that loves his employees as much as this guy. To which I smiled. I said, that's because he knows Jesus and he loves Christ. This guy, being an unbeliever, couldn't find the connection, but I wanted to help him see that it's because of Christ that he loves his employees. He goes, well, I, I, I guess I can see it. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of stuttering. I, I, I guess I can see this. I've never met a guy like that. I said, well, let me tell you about Christ. And so that's my desire for, for us to, to, to put Christ before us, to look at and marvel at his greatness, to, to follow in his steps and be a servant just as much as he is servant of all. Amen? <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, again, just thank you for this, this short introduction, something out of the ordinary. We normally die in the exposition, dive into the exposition of your word. We, we thank you, however, to set the stage of what to expect. We thank you for your word and how it will transform us and how it will teach us more about Christ and how it will cause us to walk in the Spirit and be like Christ. May you continue to protect our time together. You're gracious in that. We ask, Lord, that you continue to find us loving each other, lifting each other up and according to love and good deeds, according to the Scriptures, having fellowship in the name of Christ. May you continue to pursue our sins. May we confess our sins, knowing that Jesus is the sufficient Savior to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is much for our hearts and our minds to be stirred in this gospel. And though it is July 4th, 2021, Lord, I am looking forward to to each week as we come, allowing the word, the inspired word of God to, to teach us, to shape us, and to mold us. So to you alone be the glory, honor, and praise. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is the Messiah, who is the anointed one.
We pray in his holy name, the redeemer of our souls. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.